Um, I think, you know, I mean, I've read your bio and I'll, I'll explain, but, I, you know, I think you would do a better job of anyone uh, in introducing yourself. So if you could give maybe a brief introduction as to uh, who you are and, and uh, what you do. Okay. Uh, again, my name is David Foran, uh, PhD from the University of Michigan in molecular genetics several years ago. And currently I'm a professor at Michigan State University. Uh, Michigan State has the oldest forensic science program in the country. Uh, and I've been here for about 18 or 19 years. Uh, I direct forensic biology. So basically, I'm a DNA person working in forensic science. Uh, we do research along those lines. So a lot of research on better ways to get DNA results from bad remains, poor quality remains. Uh, and I teach graduate students who mostly go, go on to work in crime laboratories. Uh, and otherwise kind of do forensic DNA work. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, I guess, so, I mean, I have some specifics of the case to discuss here with you first, but I think maybe it, uh, it would be good to do like a brief primer of kind of what DNA is and how we test it. I know that, you know, your average Joe, like me, we've got our exposure through, you know, shows and pr police procedural movies and things like that. But um, if you could just briefly kind of what is DNA uh, and then maybe how do we test DNA? Okay, so DNA is a genetic material that makes us us. Uh, it's a rather kind of simple but molecule. Uh, it has four building blocks, which might become important later on, uh, which are abbreviated A, G, C, and T. And it's the order of those blocks, just like the order of numbers in a phone number or something that makes every phone unique. The order of those building blocks, A, G, C, and T, and DNA, makes all of us unique, except identical twins, because they have the exact same order. Uh, it's found in basically every cell in your body, uh, identically for the most part. Uh, the exception is red blood cells. They don't have any DNA, uh, but all the other cells do. And so a sample from uh, your finger is going to be the same as a sample from your toe or as a sample from your white blood cells or any other material. So the nice thing about that for D or Forensic testing is that if we have a, say, blood stain uh, on a carpet, we don't have to get blood from an individual to test that DNA to see if it came from that individual. We can get what we typically call a buckle swab or just a little cheek swab with a Q-tip inside the cheek and compare that, and it will be identical if that blood didn't, did indeed come from that individual. Uh, so that allows forensic testing to work really well because we can take a suspect once we have one and collect a simple sample from them and say, did uh, this question material, this evidence material, come from that suspect or that victim, if that's the case? I see, okay, that's definitely more than more than I knew. So that's, I'm learning here as well. So uh, <laughs> that, that's good stuff. So um, I have done a lot of research, so, uh, you know, on my own, but I, I did wanna ask what kinds of DNA testing exist and what's the difference between them? Like for instance, I've heard in this case, and I'll, again, I'll get into specifics here in a minute, but there's some mitochondrial DNA matches, and then there's another test I found called like a nuclear DNA test. Could you just briefly explain uh, what those tests entail and what the difference is between them? Okay, so DNA in a human cell, again, it can be any cell, a skin cell, or a, any cell that you wanna pick, uh, is found in two places. About 99 or greater percent of it is found in the nucleus of the cell. And that's where your chromosomes are. So you have your 22 pairs of chromosomes and you get half of that from mom, half of that from dad. So 
you can inherit chromosome one, one copy of chromosome one from mom, one copy of chromosome one from dad, and same for chromosome two and three and four and five. So you have two of each. Uh, that's unique to every individual, those DNAs. There's so much kind of recombining of that DNA that goes on, and then you have half mom and half dad. So everyone's different. And if you walk down the street, you can see that just from vis visible traits that everyone looks different, except again, identical twins look very similar. Uh, but otherwise, people are unique. Uh, and we can put statistics on that. We can look at the DNA differences in nuclear DNA and say, what are the chances that, say again, I have a blood stain and I have a suspect and their DNA matches up, for lack of a better term. Uh, what are the chances that that blood stain actually came from a different individual? And we can go out and test lots of people and come up with some pretty good statistics on the chances of that blood stain coming from someone besides our suspect. Again, that's assuming it matches the suspect, the DNA. Uh, and those numbers these days with the type of testing we do come into the the chances that it would match someone else just by chance is one in hundreds of trillions or higher. We get into number like quadrillions and sextillions. Uh, the chances that that blood stain came from someone else besides our suspect can be one in 45,000 trillion. Uh, that's the likelihood. It's, it's, so it's just incredibly, obviously there aren't nearly that many people on earth, so it's incredibly unlikely that that DNA, that blood stain came from someone besides our suspect. So it's unique. And this is with a nuclear identifier. test, you're saying? Because yes, that's where the DNA is found. Uh, so it's very, very informative. And it's what you mostly hear when you present to a jury. Uh, it's nuclear DNA testing from things like sexual assaults or other types of testing. And it's what most of the crime labs do. Now, there is another small amount of DNA in each cell that is not really unique to each individual, but it can be informative. And that's called mitochondrial DNA. So mitochondria are the little energy producers of each cell. They're a small little organelle that are in all your cells and they produce the energy. And without them, you don't live very long. So if anything affects them, it's bad. Uh, they, for evolutionary reasons, have their own little bit of DNA. And it's a tiny amount of DNA compared to what's in the nucleus. Um, instead of 22 chromosomes, they have one small circular piece of DNA. That's, again, a tiny fraction of your total DNA in each cell. What's unique about mitochondrial DNA, uh, there's a few things that are unique about it. One is that it's pretty tough. So the nucleus uh, is not a very strong organelle in your cells, and it breaks down pretty easily. Uh, and the DNA inside it breaks down pretty easily. On the other hand, the mitochondria is this kind of tough little organelle that, that can stand up to a lot more mm, whatever, uh, can stand up to a lot more abuse. And it's... That means that its little piece of DNA can be found in tissues that have long lost all their nuclear DNA. Uh, but again, it's not unique. Mitochondrial DNA is not unique. And that's because it's inherited by the egg. So you inherited your mitochondrial DNA and all your cells from your mother. And she inherited it from her mother and from her mother and on and on. So if we, like my, for myself, for instance, I have three siblings. All of us inherited the same mitochondrial DNA from our mother, uh, and so all of our mitochondrial DNA would be the same. And then uh, if my sisters passed it on to their children, uh, that would be the same as well. Uh, males cannot pass it on, so I myself would be irrelevant mitochondrially. Uh, and it's very useful for that because we can use it to identify 
potentially identified distant relatives. And it's used a lot by the armed forces, that's probably uses mitochondrial DNA testing the most, to identify remains from previous wars. So they started doing that for the Vietnam War uh, after remains started you know, showing up now and then uh, from old burials in South or North Vietnam. Uh, and they would use mitochondrial DNA if they had an idea who the person might be, they could go to a distant relative, a maternal relative, be it a sibling or a cousin on the mom's side or a second cousin on the mom's side, it'd be quite distant, but they would have the same mitochondrial DNA and they could say, does that match up with these often skeletal remains that we have from the Vietnam War? So the armed forces use it a lot to help make identifications. But again, it's, it's not unique. So it's not a unique identifier uh, because we share it with other individuals. So the most, in, in Caucasians, for instance, the most common mitochondrial DNA type uh, occurs in about 5% of Caucasians. So one in 20 people, even if they're not directly related, have the same mitochondrial DNA. Uh, and I'm one of those, I'm one of that 5% for the most common type, uh, as are my siblings then, obviously. So it's not a unique identifier, but we can get it because of how tough that little mitochondria is. We can get it from oftentimes very old remains or really poor quality remains. Uh, and that's what they've done a lot of with uh, just ancient DNA testing. When they go back to individuals that died thousands of years ago, uh, you can still often get mitochondrial DNA from those remains. Again, typically those would be skeletal remains. So in our lab, we've gone, worked with some of our forensic anthropologists and gone back to remains that they have that date back thousands of years. And we can still get mitochondrial DNA from those remains when we can't get nuclear DNA at all. Interesting. Uh, we can look, you know, get information from that, but again, it's not a unique identifier. Right, so would it be fair to say then that it can inform, but not, uh, I don't know, it's not like a smoking gun. Like if I have mitochondrial DNA and I'm, maybe I'm, I have a, about a five or six suspects that I, that I can get DNA off of, okay, it could inform and maybe narrow down that list, but it's not uh, like a smoking gun. It can't tie you definitively on its own. Is that fair to say? Correct. Yep, correct. That's a good analogy. Uh, it's really good at eliminating people. So if you say, as your, for your example, if you had five or six individuals uh, and had some kind of sample, and we'll talk about hairs for the most part here, right. uh, that you found a shed hair on at this crime scene, uh, the mitochondrial DNA would be probably pretty good at eliminating most of those individuals. It might eliminate all six of them, uh, and it might eliminate five of them, and then the one person would still be consistent. So it's very strong for eliminating suspects. If they don't have the same mitochondrial DNA, it's not their tissue, uh, it's not their hair, it's not their piece of bone or whatever you're looking at, uh, but it's not a unique identifier. Okay, so that does bring me, I think it's a good segue into, into some case specific questions. Now I know you're not an expert on this specific case, but I'll, I'll try and be as specific as I can here. So uh, we were talking about, you were just talking about, hey, we can use mitochondrial DNA for old things, degraded things. So in this case, um, there are there was a DNA test uh, against a suspect, James Vincent Gunnels. And so everything that I found said that the hair sample from one of the victims that they used to test, it was uh, the, the language used I found was extinguished after this test. Um, so when you're testing things like mitochondrial DNA, is this, is this a normal thing with older, uh, perhaps degraded samples when you test it, is it used up now? Uh, is that common? 
Uh, it depends on the sample. If you have a you know a whole femur, you would only use a tiny fraction of that to do your testing. If you have a small hair, you might want to use the whole thing because there's still not a lot of mitochondrial DNA in that hair. And let me back up for just a second on how hairs work. So a typical hair is uh, is in various stages of growth, and it can be actively growing, uh, or it can be just kind of stagnating and hanging around, or it can be ready to be shed. And we all lose hairs all the time. That actively growing hair down in the root has a lot of living cells. And those cells are basically cranking out what hair is made of, which is the protein keratin. So they produce lots and lots of keratin and they're living healthy cells. So if a hair gets yanked out of your head or wherever, uh, it will have often a root and we've all seen that I'm sure. And that root is made up of living cells and it's very good for doing nuclear DNA testing. But as those cells down in the root fill up with keratin, uh, they kind of explode, literally, and all this keratin is pushed up into the hair shaft, and that's why your hair grows, and there's more living cells down below that that then repeat that process. Uh, but the nucleus pretty much gets destroyed. So in a hair, uh, the hair shaft itself, we don't really find nuclear DNA to any extent uh, that is at least viable for what the typical testing, DNA testing we do now. But those little tough mitochondria that I talked about, they get pushed up into the hair shaft as well. Uh, but they kind of survive. They don't do much because there's no longer part of a cell, but they're there. And so if we have a hair shaft that's shed, so it has no root anymore, uh, then we can still often get mitochondrial DNA from that hair where we can't get nuclear DNA to any extent. Uh, how much mitochondrial DNA depends on the hair? Thicker hairs have more of the mitochondria because they have more of those cells down below than a really fine hair. So the hair on your body hair is often not a very good source of DNA, whereas head hair is. Or if you take a really good hair, like a something from the, a tail of a horse or something, that's a really good, that will ha can have lots of DNA in it. Uh, but the, well, go ahead, ask me a question. Yeah, so when you're testing things like hair samples, which is primary the, the, the primary source of DNA in this case, um, how common is it to like be in this case the language uses extinguished um how okay. common is it when you're testing this dna mitochondrially uh like do you use it up like how does that how does that situation work okay so yeah it's not uncommon uh if you have a hair at a crime scene uh it's often i mean if you have a hair that's two feet long you're not going to use the whole thing but if you have a you know, an eyebrow or an eyelash you almost pretty much have to use the whole thing and if you have a hair that's only an inch or so long or less, you're usually going to use it all up just to make sure you try to get a, you know, the best chance of getting a positive result at the other end. Right. Now, so you ideally, wouldn't want to use the entire thing in that case because that gives you the best chance of getting uh, the information, the DNA information out of it. Correct? Correct. Uh, so I, ideally for any... Uh, evidence sample, you don't use the whole thing up so that the other side, the defense, can test it themselves. Uh, so if you have a hair that's six inches long, you would at best use half of it. Uh, but if you have a hair that's only half an inch long or something, you know, someone has a very short haircut, uh, if you use half of that, you probably get no results and the defense would get no results from the other half of it. So oftentimes you have to use the whole thing. Gotcha. And then when you say use the whole thing, uh, what, does that, what does that entail? Like, when you're using the hair, does the hair like get used up or, or, you know, you can't get 
DNA off of it any, anymore. It's like a one-shot situation. So, um, yes, typically what we do in our lab and other labs is actually have a tiny little grinder that grinds up the hair. Uh, and so, again, hair is really tough, and the mitochondria are going to be on the inside. So we have to get kind of grind up all that protein, that keratin that hair is made up of, to expose or extract out the mitochondrial DNA. Uh, and so we literally have this tiny little grinder, like a little mortar and pestle, and you grind it up into kind of a slurry with some liquid, some buffer, and some detergent, and then do a DNA extraction to pull out the DNA and leave all the protein and other materials behind. So the hair is completely. Gotcha. Okay, good to know. Um, now, I know we talked about this and you were talking about the, the Vietnam War and how uh, DNA mitochondrial especially started to be used there as they discovered remains. Uh, how challenging is it to get usable DNA off of a dead body? For instance, in this case, they tested a suspect in 1999. He died in a car accident in 1981. So they exhumed his body in 1999 and tried to do a DNA comparison at that point. Is it particularly difficult to get? Uh, DNA off of a dead body or, or not so much? Um, it depends very much on how the DNA or the, the material, uh, biological material is preserved. So I usually just do an analogy, analogy of what you would find uh, when you cook food or use food. Uh, you don't come home and leave that piece of hamburger on the counter for weeks or months because uh, it goes bad. It rots, the proteins rot, the DNA rots. Uh, but if you put it in the refrigerator, it will last longer. And if you freeze it, it will last for a very, very long amount of time. So under the correct conditions, like freezing, DNA will last virtually forever. Uh, another way to preserve DNA is to dry it out. So people have dried meat uh, for a long time, beef jerky or whatever. You dry it as much as you can, and then really the bacteria or other microbes that might gobble up all that protein and uh, DNA aren't active anymore in that really dry environment. So there's different ways to preserve something. Uh, the best way is not necessarily to bury it in the ground uh, because you know, there's lots of things, microbes in the soil that will use that as a fuel source and use the proteins in the DNA as fuel and eat it all up. In other words, it rots. Uh, on the other hand, if that body has been preserved, uh, including embalming, uh, then the DNA may be better preserved. So you can't guarantee ever that if you dig up a body or exhume a body that it's going to be in good shape or poor shape. Uh, it depends on the environmental conditions. If it's in the desert, nice and dry, it, you might be able to get, especially from skeletal remains, uh, easily get DNA from it. If it's in really moist conditions where there's lots of microbial activity, then stuff can be in really bad shape. Uh, we did some human remains recently in the lab from a, another homicide case in Michigan uh, that were buried under a back porch for about 30 years, 40 years or so, the person that went missing back then. Uh, and we had a really hard time, even the skeletal remains looked pretty good. We had a really hard time getting DNA from those and had to use mitochondrial DNA because we can no longer get nuclear DNA from them. Uh, on the other hand, I've had remains that looked really terrible. And if you can get a good little piece of tissue someplace, you might be able to get a full nuclear DNA profile when, you know, if you guessed at it, you said, I probably am not gotcha. going to. So there's no guarantee. Uh, 
typically you're going to test nuclear DNA first. And if that doesn't work, then you move on to mitochondrial DNA. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now, I think you touched on something very that, that I was going to get into there. So uh, I wanted to get into it now. In this case here, particularly, uh, major critics of the police handling of the case have at times pointed out uh, either the chain of custody and the evidence chain was, was very poorly maintained and or um, uh, things that were gathered from the crime scenes back when these murders took place were not preserved properly uh, for testing later once DNA, the advent of DNA testing came along. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how much you could comment uh, as to how things were back in the 70s, but I guess uh, if you could comment about how maybe storing of evidence has changed since the 70s to today, that would be helpful. But if, if, if you can't, um, just maybe a brief overview of, okay, how do we want to store evidence at crime scenes best for testing? What, what are the ideal conditions for, uh, for that? Okay. Um, I, I, yes, things have changed greatly since the 1970s or before. Back then, uh, what we would typically have for identification are things like ABO blood typing which are not nearly as informative as DNA testing uh, because lots of us are type A and lots of us are type B uh, blood, et cetera. Uh, and so, and, and that could be only tested from blood. So if you had other materials like skeletal remains, you might not be able to get those types of results at all. Uh, today, the best, again, the best way to preserve samples, it would typically be freezing them, put them in regular old freezer, uh, well marked obviously. Uh, but on the other hand, what they'll often do today also is to swab something with like, a, again, a Q-tip type swab, a sterile one, and let that dry. And as I mentioned before, drying out uh, body fluids or tissue is another good way to preserve it. So it's not atypical for the, today for uh, different items to be swabbed and then dried and, and preserved in that way. But in the 1970s, when this case happened, or these murders happened, uh, people didn't know about preserving things that way. So they would look at the things that they were testing back then. Obviously, fingerprints were around, so those would get tested. Uh, gunshot residue was around, so that might get tested. Uh, hair analysis, microscopic hair analysis was around, so that uh, could be tested, although it's not a very good type of forensic science, but it has some information. Uh, but nobody was preserving stuff for DNA. At best, they would be preserving it for things, for proteins like ABO blood typing, uh, and if they didn't have the right type of samples, like blood samples, then they wouldn't be preserving those at all. So if there's something, I mean, and the same would happen today. If we didn't know what's going to be 20 years, 40 years down the line as far as testing, we might not gather the right samples today from a crime scene that might be useful 40 years from now. But you know, that's predicting the future, and that's really right, hard sure. to do. Um, thank you for that. So. I did want to ask, so I was talking uh, just to my dad, who, I mean, he's just a, uh, he's an automotive engineer, so he's not, you know, a DNA guy either. And I was like, well, what questions would you have about DNA? What would you want to ask it? And we shared some of the same ones. So uh, when you test DNA, whether it's mitochondrial or nuclear, um, let's say, for instance, like in our example, where some of the samples are used up because they didn't have as much hair and fibers, you know, because they didn't know about DNA. So they, we take what we got, we test it we use it up. Uh, is DNA, is that kind of like a data file? Like, do I have the DNA like match in a database somewhere and now I can infinitely match that to new people that enter the system or new DNA that I get? Um, or is, is something different uh, there? 
Well, once you have a DNA result, you can, you know, that's an electronic result, it's on your computer. So you can match that forever. So if I have a mitochondrial DNA result, and, and for mitochondrial DNA, we're actually testing the DNA sequence, so A, G, C, C, G, C, T, T, A, T, on and on. Uh, if I have that result, then I can compare it to new results down the line, new suspects or whatever. Uh, the same is true for nuclear DNA testing. Uh, once I have the result uh, for modern day nuclear DNA testing, that can go into uh, a database and just be stored there. And that happens all the time with crimes today. If you don't have a suspect and you have say a sexual assault or something, uh, you can get a DNA result. And if you don't have a suspect yet, you can either look to see if it matches anyone already in the database. And today's database has have millions and millions of people in it, uh, mostly people that have committed crimes. Uh, and if that comes up empty, you don't see a match there, then you can also wait for new people to be entered into the database and check it once a month or once a year or whatever and say, does it hit anyone, does it match anyone that's new in the database? Uh, so those DNA results in and of themselves are, are good forever. Does that require, so I think you touched on an important point there, does that require always manual intervention to run uh, a test against a particular sample like it's not like if I put Joe Schmo off the street and I arrest him um, his DNA is not just automatically going to match to a case 40 years ago like someone has to manually compare those or how does that work no it's it's computer driven so you don't have to manually do it otherwise you'd have to you know look to see if it matched millions of people uh, and so the database that we use that is in existence now is called CODIS C-O-D-I-S which stands for the Combined DNA Index System, and it combines DNA results from all 50 states and U.S. territories and federal labs like the FBI lab, uh, and now it's international as well. And so it's a huge database of people throughout the country, and again, most of those are, are either someone who committed a crime, so it's an unknown sample, but it was from a crime scene, or it's people that are in prison. And actually, in the state of Michigan, now we're doing people that are arrested. So if you're arrested, they're going to take a little swab of inside your cheek and run it and see if you're wanted for any crimes that they didn't know about. Uh, and that's been argued in court is whether or not that's legal or not. But courts have found that it is legal, just like running your fingerprints if you're arrested. Uh, so they will take a sample of arrestees as well. Uh, it's entered into a computer database and you wait not very long. And if it comes back as a, quote, match to someone, uh, then it is a match. Now, they often, if you, for instance, have a blood stain uh, from a scene and you do DNA testing on it, and then it comes up as a match to someone that's in prison in Michigan someplace or around the country someplace, um, you don't automatically say that person's guilty because there could be some kind of technical snafu, you know, paperwork problem or something. So they would go and get a new sample from that suspect uh, and say and run it again and say okay now we have a known from that person not just in the computer but we we you know, tested that person again and doesn't match that blood stain that we have as evidence uh, so it gets retested uh, but it's not a visual thing or a manual thing at all it's all computer driven yeah it's all it's all computerized awesome so what if uh, in that scenario that you described what if you can't get DNA off that suspect anymore to retest would would there be a high degree of certainty to say hey this guy's dead we can't get dna off of him for for x y or z we're pretty sure that we can close this cold case 
Um, or would you really to be more, you know, with a high degree of certainty, confident, would you really need to, as much as you could try and get that DNA, uh, like a, a fresh sample? Yeah, that's a good sample or a good question. That's a good question. Uh, the, if, a, if, a, so let's say someone was in prison and died in prison because they were in there for life or whatever, uh, they might get cremated. And once someone's cremated, you can't get a DNA sample anymore. Uh, if they have a full DNA profile and it makes sense that they could have committed that crime, uh, they were, you know, alive, they weren't in prison at the time. They right, were or they about, lived in the area or they had a predisposition to commit whatever crime. Exactly. Then they might close the case, say, okay, we, we you know, have the DNA from that. You know, that hopefully wasn't screwed up sometime along the line, but we have a suspect that makes sense. Uh, he's the right age, those types of things. I mean, that's what happened with the California killer a few years ago. Right, was the that Golden he State was, killer. That was a, that was yes. a interesting one, made a lot of headlines. So uh, I wanted to ask you that you just said there, hopefully it wasn't messed up along the way. Uh, what kinds of like mess ups and errors and things could occur along, along the way? Uh, the, country is pretty careful about that. So although it's a, a database that all the states have access to, it's not on the internet. So you can't go and search it. I can't go and search it. You have to be a certified CODIS lab, uh, which in our state, the Michigan State Police are. Uh, their DNA labs, which are in Grand Rapids, Lansing, and uh, Northville, outside of Detroit, uh, they're CODIS labs that can uh, search the database and then most of the CODIS testing is actually done at the Lansing lab, the headquartered lab. Uh, so it's not an internet thing. No, it can get into the system. Uh, it's it's an intranet. It's self-contained. Uh, so mistakes right, sure. are- I work in cybersecurity, so you're, you're, you're speaking my language now. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, mistakes along those lines are pretty unlikely. The most likely mistake that you, going to have is uh, either paperwork getting messed up, someone just, you know, checks the wrong box or enters the wrong form or types in the wrong number. Uh, there's a lot of checks and balances to try to make sure those are caught. Uh, but those types of mistakes can happen. And then there can be obviously mistakes at the scene where the CSI or the police don't co collect the right evidence or they switch up evidence or something. Uh, what what doesn't happen is, is that you get a, a made-up result. You you never get a situation where you swab something and get, you know, one person's DNA from another person's DNA. So if I if it's my blood, you're not going to collect that blood and it's all of a sudden going to turn into your blood or your DNA. Uh, it just degrades away. So you don't get wrong results along those lines, but you could potentially have you know, paperwork results or problems uh, that occur and and those types of mm, screw-ups that uh, hopefully get caught along the line. And it, that hasn't been much of a problem. Uh, there are lots and lots of checks and balances in the crime labs. So, for instance, uh, they know the DNA results from the police that collect stuff. So if a, one of the officers that collected evidence con contaminates something, they will get a result that you know, isn't the right result, but they can look and say, whose DNA is this? And say, oh, it's a police officer that collected it, of course. Or the people that work in the crime labs, uh, all their results, their DNA profiles are on uh, available also. Gotcha. So 
if something does get contaminated, usually you can catch and figure out who it was. Gotcha. Okay. But it does seem like, so once you get to the testing or you test, it, it's, you're right. You don't, it, it doesn't seem like you can really mess up from that stage. Like get a wrong result. Like, Oh, we, you know, you're right. The DNA doesn't change. So it can't like wrongly result in somebody, but it seems like there is at least a, a potential there for high human error in terms of, okay, we got to collect and label the collection, right? And get this to crime lab and then they have to fill the forms out correctly. So, um, you know, if there is an error, it sounds like uh, that that would be more likely where it would occur versus later in the process. Um, yes, you're correct. And and I often compare it again to food. Uh, if you have, you know, buy a hamburger at the store and put it on the, you know, accidentally leave it on the counter for two weeks, it's not going to turn into a pork chop. Right. Uh, it's still, it's, it's still a hamburger. It's nasty now. Right. It's going <laughs> to turn into mush. Right. It's still gotcha. Uh on the other hand, if it's mislabeled at the store, you know, and they, they label the hamburger, but it's, you know, and it's, it's actually a pork chop that they packaged up, but labeled it as hamburger, then you could have that kind of error. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I did want to ask, so you've talked a lot about blood as an example, and I know we've had hair primarily as an example. Well, not, but yeah, as an example throughout this case, um, is one kind of sample better or worse than another? I know we've talked about how you might get nuclear DNA off a of hair with a root versus without, but is like uh, semen versus blood versus hair. Like as a DNA expert yourself, if someone says, hey, we, we need your help testing this, what are you like? Oh, yes, you know, we have this. That'll be great. Or where are you maybe like, oh, we, we only have this. This this could be a challenge. Uh, yeah, the quality of the DNA, you know, mostly depends on, you know, how old it is and how it was stored. Uh, Shed hairs, again, don't have much in the way of nuclear DNA at all, so they're not ideal. You pretty much have to resort in this day and age to mitochondrial testing. There are some new techniques coming along, but uh, you're just pretty much limited to mitochondrial DNA for the most part. Uh, semen is a really good source of DNA because basically semen is a DNA delivery system. Those sperm are filled with DNA that are you know, trying to be delivered to the egg. So that's an excellent source. Uh, Blood is an okay source, but again, the cells in blood that have DNA are the white blood cells uh, and red blood cells don't. So red blood cells, the ratio of red blood cells to white blood cells is about 600 to one. So for every 600 red blood cells, you have one white blood cell. So it's not a great source of DNA. But on the other hand, if you have a blood stain the size of a pea or less, you'll still get a good DNA profile from it. Again, as, assuming it hasn't rotted. Uh, if it's rotted away, then the DNA is going to be broken down and that makes it a lot more challenging. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I did want to circle back. I know this is a little out of order here. I just found this question here. So, you know, you said mitochondrial DNA that's shared maternally. So you're going to have the same mitochondrial DNA as your, you know, as siblings of yours, um, relatives of yours on the mother's side of the family. So would you say then um, that, like, for, in, for, for instance, James Vincent Gunnels, a suspect in this case, he had a younger brother, Paul Gunnels. Um, so if you have a DNA match to who you think is James Vincent Gunnels, could it also be a match then to Paul Gunnels, his brother? Um, yes. Assuming they have the same biological mother, they should have identical mitochondrial DNA. And that's happened in cases before. You won't be surprised where... Someone says, you know, I didn't do it. My brother did it. And the other guy says, I didn't do it. My brother did it. 
Uh, that's even happened with identical twins where they both point at each other and say uh, it, it's his DNA, even if they have nuclear DNA. Uh, there was a case out of Grand Rapids several years ago where that happened and both of them pointed at each other and said he did it. Uh, I believe that was a sexual assault. Uh, and the jury really couldn't decide uh, whose DNA it was because they're both identical. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a very good. I definitely wanted to know uh, that one because it seems, at least in this case, that police never did bother interviewing his brother for one reason or another. So I just wanted to know from a DNA only perspective, you know, everything else excluded just in a vacuum. Hey, if you have a mitochondrial DNA match to suspect A and suspect A has a biological brother who perhaps also could have committed the crime, you know, perhaps you should have interviewed him as well. So, uh, yeah, that's where you definitely want to do nuclear DNA testing if at all possible. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then this is, I guess, more, more broad, but with, with this suspect Arch Sloan, uh, DNA ultimately, uh, and it's a hair sample again, is matched to his car. So the police label, hey, we got this from Arch Sloan's car. And then years later, once DNA testing comes along, they test the hairs found from his car. And they're like, hey, this came from his car. But when they tested Arch Sloan himself, uh, that DNA test, uh, was, it was not a match to him. So uh, I know we've talked about it, but in that case, that that's an entirely then different person, right? That go, kind of goes back to the food analogy, correct? Um, yes. If they tested a hair from the car, it should be a, again, mitochondrial DNA is very good at eliminating people. Uh, and basically he was eliminated as a source of that DNA. Right. So it couldn't have been him, but someone, I suppose, who borrowed his car then. So what would it take then to match... Um, that DNA or really any DNA to its owner. I have a, a, I have a DNA sample, you know, I have the data from this DNA. Let's say it's a good sample. Uh, what does it take to match it to the owner? Is it just kind of a numbers game of let's try and find suspects, test their DNA or hope that this guy will get arrested for something else. Um, what's like the, the go-to of we have a DNA sample. We don't know who it belongs to. Um, you know, how, how, how typically would you go about finding the owner? Uh, okay, well, so that depends on the type of DNA testing you're doing. Uh, currently, again, what's in the databases that we use in the United States is nuclear DNA. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, those have millions upon millions of people in it, the CODIS system. And so you could either search CODIS itself if you have a nuclear DNA profile from a question sample. Uh, and if it doesn't match anyone in the database, you can kind of wait and see if that person shows up. Uh, and we can get into genealogical testing in a second. Uh, if it's a mitochondrial DNA sequence, uh, you have a lot less, a lot fewer options. And that's because for one thing, mitochondrial DNA is not in CODIS. Uh, it's kind of complicated to test mitochondrial DNA. So, and again, it's not nearly as informative. So that's not tested. So you really don't have a database there. So in that case, you pretty much need a suspect um, or a relative of a suspect to compare it to, to see if, you know, that hair might've come from that individual. Gotcha. Yeah. So in closing here, I did want to ask, uh, it seems like this is a natural segue here. Uh, how are sites like 23andMe, Ancestry, these other DNA collection sites, you know, I've read a good bit about it, but how do these factor into modern DNA testing and investigations? Cause it seems like, at least as far as my research and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like uh, that, that that's been able to be used to solve crimes because now you're finding third cousins and second cousins and you're, you're, you're putting 
you're, you're getting in the ballpark where before you, you weren't. Um, so, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about how these sites or these databases uh, affect and factor into modern DNA testing. So, yeah, the, the DNA samples or the DNA testing that's done for uh, kind of lay person that you send into a company and they do DNA testing for you, uh, that DNA testing is completely different than what we do in forensics typically. In other words, they look at different parts of the DNA. Uh, they're asking different questions. So those sites uh, typically are for, you know, what are my origins? Uh, and they've gotten better and better, but uh, years ago when you get tested, they'd say, okay, you're 17% of this ethnicity and 43% of that ethnicity uh, and come up with some you know, numbers like that that might be somewhat accurate. Uh, but they have tested uh, more and more people uh, of historical interest, so people that originate from Europe. Uh, you know, we Americans are kind of mutts, so there's, outside of Native Americans, uh, you know, we're kind of all over the place. But they go back and test people that are from, uh, you know, Northern European, Southern European, uh, Mediterranean, on and on across the world. And they look at different kind of chunks of DNA for those. And again, it's a different testing than what we do typically in forensics, but they look at kind of segments of DNA. So they'll look at a chunk of, well, they'll look at all, say, chromosome one. They'll look all along chromosome one and identify bases, A, G, Cs, and Ts, that are kind of specific to one ethnicity. Uh, so it might be uh, something that's you know common for a, a, a certain, well, let me put that, change that. Uh, so they'll go along and look at regions of chromosome one and, and try to identify regions or DNA sequences that are uh, unique to a certain region of the world. Uh, so it might be Scandinavia. And they say, okay, when I see this certain set of DNA sequences, uh, I only see that naturally in Scandinavians. So if I test an American uh, and I find that region uh, that's the same, uh, I'd say, okay, ethnic-wise, that person has some Scandinavian DNA in them because it's kind of unique to that. Uh, so those sure. were the first questions that were asked, just kind of that historical. Then people started volunteering when they got those results, and they would get it for all 22 chromosomes, not just chromosome one. Uh, they started saying, are there regions of DNA that I share with other people that are in this database? So it might be that, uh, well, if you took, you know, myself and my brother, we would share a lot of these regions. Uh, and so I could be that, say I was adopted, I might put my DNA into one of these databases and say, is there any really good matches out there where I'm sharing 50% or more of these kind of segments of DNA? And if I'm sharing 50% or more, that's probably a sibling. Uh, and so I can say, you know, if that person is in the database and wants to connect with me, I can you know, go and find out who they are. And so people have been finding especially adopted people, uh, who their relatives are or, you know, what their family heritage is, biological family heritage. Uh, but you can also get situations where you have a region of DNA that is somewhat unique and you search these giant databases that people have voluntarily put their own DNA into and you find a chunk of DNA that say, oh, it, it, it's the same chunk of DNA from chromosome five that I don't see in anybody else except this one person. Now, what do I possibly have in common with that one person? Now, it could be my DNA, or in this case, it could be evidence DNA. So I have a blood sample or a sexual assault sample. 
and I don't have a suspect at all. And that's what happened in the California case and some of these other ones that are happening now. Uh, I don't have a suspect at all. So I'm going to take that DNA from the sexual assault and I'm going to do the DNA testing on it like these ethnicity sites do, 23andMe and whatnot. Uh, and then I'm going to say, I'm going to search these databases of people that have voluntarily put their DNA sequences into these databases and say, is there any chunks of DNA that are shared that are you know, kind of these unique chunks of DNA with anybody else? And that's only a lead. It doesn't say anything about these people necessarily. It just says these people, this question sample from my evidence and this individual that's in the database, who is a known person, uh, are probably related. And now we can go to that person and say, you know, ask them questions and say, where are you from? Where are your parents from? Where are your grandparents from? Like, what part of the country do they live in? Uh, does any of that make sense to uh, what happened in this crime, what we think happened in the crime? And that person from the, the California killer, uh, when they found a distant relative, they could go back and say, uh, that distant relative, they had a common relative of some sort back that lived in that San Francisco area or the area where the crimes happened. And all of a sudden, it just develops a suspect. It kind of puts a place where this person might be from or an idea of who that person might be. It doesn't prove who they are, but it's a lead. And in the case of the California killer, once they had that lead, they then went and found a person uh, that might be, well, they, that kind of match that scenario because they had again the crime scene samples and they had this distant relative of some sort uh, and found a suspect or a person that uh, might could be that second cousin uh, in California and found his age and he was the right age to have committed the crimes years before so he's now in his 70s or 80s or whatever uh, but he was a younger man back when the crimes happened and uh, he used to be a police officer and they're always really questioned that because he, uh, this person that committed the crime seemed to know what they were doing as far as not leaving evidence behind. Uh, and right, so it starts, to meet, it starts to all match up, you know, like putting the DNA in the database, it gives you a lead, but it's only one piece of the puzzle, but it allows you perhaps like a foot in the door and now you can, you know, assemble the rest. Exactly. Uh, and in that case, then what they did was actually get a DNA sample from this suspect, this individual in California. Uh, I think they just probably got it off of something he left behind. Like, Yeah, I think that one, I think they, I, I, if I remember correctly, and this might be a different case, but I think in that one, they followed him and waited until he threw out a like a coffee cup, and then they took the coffee cup out of the trash. Exactly. And once you throw something in the trash um, outside yeah, of your like own home. it's like public property or whatever. It's like exactly. you like for, forfeit ownership, right? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Awesome. So, well, then they found, you know, then they found a match to him and uh, got the conviction. Right. So yep. Those types of things can be done in these, and and that becomes a powerful tool because you're not again looking for a perfect DNA match. You're looking for just these kind of chunks of DNA on different chromosomes that might lead to a lead in the case. Sure. Can that help also? Let's say, uh, like in some of this, the DNA has been described as like degraded in in some way. Could it help you if you have like a degraded sample or like a you know, you can't get quite as good info. Can these sorts of databases help with that? Because you're just looking to get put in the ballpark rather than a one-to-one -one match or, or not so much? Um, no, they can definitely help. Uh, and 
that's along two lines. One is is that the people that work on ancient DNA, these samples from you know Neanderthals and things that go way back, uh, have gotten better and better at doing DNA analysis and kind of trying to repair the DNA a bit and and be able to get information from these really old samples. Uh, and so they've gotten more information. And also the kind of testing that's done, uh, you can, instead of trying to test big blocks of DNA, which is what we do with a nice fresh sample, uh, they can kind of take little tiny pieces of DNA and make them overlap. And so you have a little section of chromosome five, and then that overlaps with another little section of chromosome five and overlaps with the next section, and you build it all up that way. Uh, and by analyzing all these tiny sections and putting them together, you can end up with kind of one big result. Uh, so it can be very advantageous because you don't need really high quality DNA necessarily. Uh, there are some techniques now for kind of taking that really low quality stuff and uh, building it up and building it up until you get what is a very informative DNA profile. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. Well, um, you know, thanks so much for your time. I think, you know, that's, that's all the questions that really I had here. Um, you know, I don't know if, if uh, before we close here, if you had anything to add or, or anything, uh, you know, you think would be, uh, you know, a value add to the, to the DNA conversation here. Um, nope. I don't think so. But if, again, if you have some follow-up questions that you want me to clarify, feel free. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, the time uh, today and, um, you know, I'll be sure to send, send you the podcast uh, as we're, as I'm nearing completion on it. Sounds good. Good luck with your project. Thank you.